0: Well, this morning we're actually going to start in uh, Jeremiah chapter thirty-three. If you want to turn there, Jeremiah, Jeremiah thirty-three. Just a little side note: as I was actually singing that song, I've and uh, thinking about. I love song that song because it just it helps us to think about the nature and character of God and His grandeur and His glory and His goodness. And uh how often I need to rouse my soul, like literally rouse my soul, wake up, you fool, <laughs> like wake up and uh and sometimes i I know all of us if if you get lethargic, sometimes you 've got to start preaching to yourself and rouse your soul. I think some people put so much more energy and vigor into getting ready and prepared and to throwing themselves into something like a sporting event. Um, You watch what the Seahawks do before they go out on the field and they're just getting jacked up, right? Because they're going to play. And I wish as the people of God we would get jacked up because we're going to worship the King of Kings. And uh, sometimes we wonder why we're so lethargic. It's because we've not roused our souls. You can get yourself riled up and ready to go. And I think sometimes we come unprepared and not ready to go, right? So... Just a little side note, I was thinking of that, how often I to, you, you feel the lethargy. I, I hope, some t- you, Don't you feel it sometimes, the lethargy? And you got to shake it off. It's like, ugh, God have mercy on me. Anyway, let's pray and ask God to bless His Word. Father, You are awesome in Your glory, and Your power, and Your goodness. There is none like You. And You're with us. You're with us now. You are good in all your ways, wise and sovereign. We praise you, O Lord, for you are the one who created all things, sustain all things, uphold all things, and govern all things. You are forever to be praised and blessed, and may we know you and understand you, and may you give us eyes to see you so that we would no longer be foolish and undiscerning, but we would perceive and know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent, that we might understand and know what it is to have eternal life. Have mercy on every soul here this morning. Open the eyes by your Spirit, we ask in Christ. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at the supreme sovereignty of God. And this is the issue that I kind of ran into last week when I had to cut off the last two items because I got in a quagmire as I started drifting away from the presence of God into the sovereignty of God and how that works itself out. And even again this week, uh, just just so you know, it's, it's a subject that once you start mining, you feel like, oh no, I'm down very deep and I still have a long way to go. And it's not something that you can easily explain in two sentences or less. It'd be so easy and nice, wouldn't it? You could just hand out business cards then. It's something that we have to mine and try to understand because it's profound. It's deep. It's rich. It blows our brains and it's beyond us. And so we're we're venturing into a subject here that we have to venture into with much humility, uh, much need of the Spirit, and much tenderness as we tread these waters, because I think when you get going in this, you'll start to begin to see there's a lot of difficult questions. And I'm not here this morning. There's no way I can I, we can answer them all. And 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 with all doctrine, especially when you're dealing with God, you have to be willing to embrace mystery. There comes to a point, I'm just letting you know, that you and I are finite, and we just can't get our heads around it. And you have to be okay with that because you're coming up against a being that is just so much bigger than you. Have you ever thought about eternity before? And as you, and, and what you're looking for when you think about eternity is a beginning. And, but wait a second. Infinity doesn't have a beginning. That hurts our head. We, well, it doesn't have an end. If he's infinite, he doesn't... You couldn't go far enough out into the space and get, get away from him you know, you couldn't go far enough back and find somehow oh i found the beginning and when you think about that just that one concept your brain starts to hurt a bit as it is with so many all the things of god god is profound he's infinite he's all-wise he's all-knowing and so we're we're plumbing we're heading into some waters here that are deep and uh, just so you know there's there's no way every question will be answered So the first thing I want us to see is that God sovereignly controls by decree and not by micromanaging. And this is an important component because some people believe that because God is everywhere, as I talked about last week, and he's sovereign, he's controlling every single detail that happens in life in, in a very specific way, like in the minutia, everything, if he doesn't control it, it won't happen. And, you know, so, so much so that when I drop the milk or I stub my toe, it, there's a sense in which he's to blame. Right? Like, why did you do that, God? Others, on the other hand, they believe that God, sure, they believe God is everywhere, but he's more hands off and just allows things to happen. But what, what is the truth? Well, I think scripture, scripture gives us some parameters to begin to think about these issues. The fact that God is everywhere and that God is sovereign. But he, he manages by decree often and not by micromanaging. And this is a difference here. In Jeremiah chapter three, sorry, 33, Jeremiah 33, beginning at verse 20, it says this, Thus says the Lord, if you break my covenant with the day, and my covenant with the night, so that the day and night will not come at their appointed time. Then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. So why do we have day and why do we have night? Because God said, let there be, and there was. He commanded, he decreed, he entered into covenant with them. He entered into covenant with the sun, the moon, and the stars. And he told them, to, this is what I want you to do. And guess what they did? They obeyed. And they've been obeying for a long time. This earth is about, at this point, somewhere around 6,000 6, years. And you, what's been happening day in, day out, is that the sun just continually obeys. Why does, why does the whole cosmos sit spinning in apparent nothingness? How is this possible? Because God spoke. That's how it's possible. You know, we see this idea of God declaring by covenant. Now, one thing we have to understand is that all of life, the, the world we live in, is a covenantal world. God does all things by covenant. He enters into covenant. He establishes by covenant. He establishes covenant with man. He renews the covenant. Everything by covenant. And what a covenant? Yeah, he he swears by his word. This is what's going to happen. And if it doesn't happen, this is this will be the consequence of it not happening. So he enters into covenant with Adam at the beginning. This is what you're to do, Adam. And Adam's to what's he's to tend the garden. And he's he's to to, to eat of the garden, he's to be fruitful, he's to be multiply, he's to take dominion. God gave him, in his covenantal dealing with Adam, he gave him authority over all earth. So all of creation, sorry about that one, all of creation is now subject to Adam. That's how God designed it. He, He made him like God in the image of God, and he set this covenant up. But what did he say? He said, now here's in this covenantal relationship, there's one thing that I don't want you to do. Do not eat of the treat of the knowledge of good and evil. So in this covenant, it has parameters and bounds, and do not eat of it. And the moment you eat of it, you will surely die. And we know what happens. He violates and breaks the covenant, and so he suffers the consequences of the covenant. This idea of God entering into covenant with all of creation is found in several places. This morning was read for us Psalm 148, verse 3 and following, which says, Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord. Why? For He commanded and they were created. And He established them forever and ever. Listen to this. He gave a decree, and it shall not pass away. So God has spoken, God has sworn, he just didn't create, he enters into covenant with them, and establishes them, and gives them commands, and orders, and functions, and they obey him. And so he declares what their duty is, and then they do his duty. And he says also, understand something, we can talk all we want about uh, people saying, uh, being worried and concerned about the, the earth, and, and oh no, if we, you know, man thinks he's just so powerful and sovereign, like, we got to be careful or we'll destroy the earth. What? Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? You're not that powerful. You are in the hands of the living God. He's made decrees, and he's set them in order. So whatever they say about whatever's happening, because we know that, yeah, there's entropy happening, and things are decaying, but just for a moment, for a while, wait until the resurrection when all things are set back in order. God has established this. He wants this earth to be here. He wants this to function. How, does, how long? Forever and ever, and he's decreed it. This is reaffirmed in Job thirty-eight, thirty-three, where God questions Job. He says, Do you know the ordinance of the heavens? Or have you fixed the rule all over the earth? Do you know the ordinances? The decrees? The covenantal decree that I have? Do you know them with the heavens? That I, do you know these covenantal decrees I have with the heavens? Do you know the ones that I have with the earth? Tell me if you know these things. And Obviously, we know that Job nor us have any answers to these. We don't know. We don't know how this works in the minutiae, but we know that it is. That's what we know. God's declared it. And the point is that this world was set up by God's word, and it functions according to his covenantal decree. It obeys him. This means that he didn't make a world and everything in it so that he could micromanage every detail and be at the dials. You know, has to make everything function. He speaks it, tells it to do things, and it functions in a certain way. This is why we live in a world with math and science as a substructure. It's why you can continually test things over and over and they repeat themselves. It's why this, this foundation of science works, like, you know, like gravity. I don't care how many times, if I has to drop something at the same speed, the same rate, the same way, every single time. That isn't God grabbing the pen and throwing it on the, the table. It's because he decreed it, told it, and it's obeying him. Right? This is where there's so much wisdom, there's so much beauty and glory in it all. And everything in creation has order, it all has structure, and it has formulas, and definable chemical ingredients. There's so much wisdom and engineering in every aspect of creation that each thing we perceive is terribly humbly, humbling to behold in its complexity, in its beauty, and in its wisdom. I was struck by this recently as I was helping Isaiah with his homework. He's helping him prepare for a test on the structure of the glucose molecule. And I thought I'd have a look at this. (laughs) (laughs) Whoa. Humbling. Complexity. Uh, Wisdom. Profound engineering. It's like cyclical in its structure. And it's mind-blowing. And it, this is ha- This is going on everywhere in the cellular world there's little machines and motors and, and, and uh, little cycles happening and this thing telling this thing what to do and then this one gives a high five to the other one and the other one loops around and it, it, here's in one cell this complex beautiful cyclical engineering that blows your mind and how could you look at that and say oh That just happened somehow. (laughs) Are you kidding me? That is unreal. Every single piece in the system is complex. It's cyclical. It's profoundly obeying this code, this decree that's been given. It's set up the structure, and God said, and it is, and there it is. And so you have to, if you want to, and here's the beauty of it, God's like, if you want to take dominion of this earth, part of the thing is you have to get to know it. You have to understand it. You have to you have to actually find out how I've decreed it, how I've worked it, how i plan it, and you have to get in there and look at it and stare at it and study it and, and scratch your head and study it some more and study it some more. And, and, and all of a sudden, if you keep studying and you keep studying, wait a second. I see a clue here. I see a clue. And then you find out how God is working and how he works things, and then you can invent and create and manifest his image through your life. This is what we see all over creation. And it's because of his decree, which governs all the minutiae of life, God doesn't have to personally micromanage every single detail, even though he can at any given moment if he wants to. Let's go back to last week. You know, God by the Spirit is everywhere present. So everything works a certain way, except at any given moment he decides that, no, I don't want it to work this way right now. Remember the story of Joshua? Josh was in the battle. He prays to the Lord that he would give him some more time. He goes, okay, I'll stop. Stops the sun. It's not a big deal. Now, if we're to think that busts our brains, like, how is that possible? How could the sun? And then all of a sudden we, we take all the, the scientific data and line it up and we show how scientifically it is impossible for that to happen. That's because for many people, science is God. The scientific formulas, those trump all things. And here's the scientific formula, and here's God, even if there is one. How could this happen? How could it be? He must submit to this. No, he doesn't have to. Nothing has to, it doesn't have to spin. (laughs) It, It can, hello, it can stop, and everything can be fine if he tells it to. We think, oh, no, if we stop, then this wouldn't happen, this wouldn't happen. No, no, stop. It can do all of those things if God tells him to do all of those things. It's obeying him. Things work because they obey him. He is sovereignly over it, and so he can tell it to do whatever he wants it to do, and it will listen to him this is his sovereign power is such that you know that's what blows our brains sometimes like how is that possible well i don't know how it's possible other than the fact that he just talks to it and it listens to him he he says it and it is this is sovereign power like you've never seen before this is so terif- this power this is power that is beyond any power you've ever witnessed in your life the most powerful thing you've witnessed, the raging of the sea you watch. Have you ever watched these movies where the sea is raging and just looks so monstrous and it destroys everything in its path? And God says, this far and no further. Or he says, stop, and it stops. It's power. That's that's the God we serve. Now, to add another element to this discussion that makes it more complex. That's kind of on a simple level. God sovereignly governs everything by decree, not by micromanaging. He speaks to it and it functions. But now we have this system, like pre-fall. It's a perfect system. Everything's working right. Cells are working right. They don't mutate. We don't have cancer. We don't have all this other stuff. Everything's working just fine. But something happened, right? Something was introduced into this whole system. And now we have a shift. Sin, wickedness, evil, a change of authority, demonic forces, a curse on the earth entered into the whole thing. So these dark, wicked forces are warring against God, hate God, going against him in every way. So even though all things were created by his word and everything he made, operates according to his covenantal decree, and even though he's present in it and over all of it, he has wickedness violently seeking to destroy it. So now we got, this is an interesting element. So now how does he sovereignly govern these things? That's the question. Okay, how, if God is sovereign and he must deal with this e- evil, how does he do that? How does, how does the sovereignty of God deal with evil at every turn? Well, just quickly, I have to say that we have to understand something first, how how the authority structure switches, because if you go back to the beginning, God made man king on the earth. So he was king over all things. However, uh, Satan cunningly got Adam and Eve to obey his word over God's word. Therefore, God made man subject to Satan, because he's subject to his word, I'll make you subject to him. And we know this, we know that God did this, and I've I've shared, spoke on this on several occasions, but just as a reminder, 2 Corinthians 4.4, it says that Satan is the god of this world. He's also called the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2.2. He's referred to as the ruler of this world by Jesus in John 12.31. We also know that he tells Jesus in Luke 4, and I've recently talked about this passage, uh, 6-7, through that he would give Satan would give Jesus the kingdoms of the world and all of its authority and all of its glory if he bowed down to him. And then he states this is the this is an interesting thing he states there. He says he he that, he says he can do this because it was delivered to him. These titles signify Satan's spiritual authority and capabilities. He was given authority over man because man submitted to his word and not God's. This is not to say, now understanding, now we see we've got another sovereign here, it seems like. Someone who's a ruler, a governor, a god of this world, right? Now, go see, God's sovereign, but now we, it seems like we've got another almost ruler coming around. How does this work? Because when we, when we say this, we're not saying that he is, when they talk about being the ruler of this world, clearly it, it, it qualifies it, of this world, of the world. And, and so he's not the absolute ruler of heaven and earth. He hasn't given absolute authority. God somehow wasn't dethroned. So just because he's given a certain authority, it's just a, it's a limited authority. Unlimited authority belongs to God and for, forever is his. His sovereignty is not uh, shaken or, or dismayed or, or, or oh, no, you know, what am I going to do? I've got this another powerhouse in town, and, and I'm afraid he might outdo me. It's, it's not that at all. It, but, but at the same time, we can't belittle it. We can't, we can't say, oh, there's really, ah, it's just, he's got a little bit of power or whatever, and, uh, no big deal. God's sovereign. No, that's why we cannot, the, the scriptures are replete with warnings. <laughs> Be very careful. Be on your guard. Satan roams around like a roaring lion seeking who may devour. Peter is only, you know why Peter made it out? The only reason Peter made it back into in relationship with Jesus is because Jesus prayed for him. Satan said, "Peter, I'm sorry." Jesus said, "Peter, Satan asked to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you." And there's that. That's the pivotal issue. Jesus prayed for him, and so he protected him. So we don't want to we don't want to dismiss it. Say, "Yeah, God is sovereign; like it doesn't matter." But at the same time, we don't want to say, oh, oh, look at this rule and authority, and he's the God of this world, and he's got power, and, and somehow we, we become afraid of him. Because here's something else we have to remember, that this power and rule that he has, his, things have changed since the coming of Jesus. Jesus came and destroyed his rule and his power. He says, when I am lifted up, I am going to throw him down. He came to he came to dismantle him. He came as the true man to take that position of authority over heaven and earth. So, so Jesus was going to recapture the throne that, that Adam had at the beginning. And so Jesus comes and he does that. But Jesus' authority, now we still have, at the same time, this is a new covenant after Jesus had died and was raised again and ascended to the right hand of God and given all authority in heaven and earth, it says in Matthew 28, he is now the king, the Lord of, of it all. There's still, those who are in the world, those who are not of Christ, still remain under the reign and rule of Satan. Because you have, listen to all these passages in the New Testament after the ascension. Second 2 Timothy 2.26 says that the unbelievers are caught in the snare of the devil and are performing his will. It also says in first John five nineteen, that they lie in the power of the evil one. And then it says in Ephesians two two that they are in the bondage they are in bondage to Satan. So we clearly see that those who are in the world and of the world and those who are not in Christ still are under this rule and domain of Satan even though the ultimate reign and rule has been given to Jesus. So that's important for us to understand. It's not like when Jesus came, he didn't totally demolish it so that, and annihilate it, so that no longer, there's no longer any issues with the evil one. No, there's a war, there's a battle, there's a continual conflict of kingdoms now at this point. And we also know that the kingdom of our Lord and of our Christ conquers and wins that doesn't mean it's not going to be without a whole lot of bloodshed. Because we already know there's been a whole lot of bloodshed. A whole lot. So, now the question I we have to wrestle through is that how does this evil work, the, the evil work of Satan function under this sovereign reign of ru- rule of Jesus and Almighty God, the Father? Especially, you know, we it's inter- it's it creates i don't know if you can sense the tension or understand the conflict here it's like okay god is sovereignly controls all things but how does this work when he's given sovereign rule to satan and he seems to have a lot of power and and that and, and he's going against god so god god's heading in this direction he's going in this direction and that necessarily creates a conflict so that god's is not being submitted to by Satan and all those who follow him, right? So he's sovereignly reigning and ruling, but Satan and all those who are who are his are diametrically opposed and going the other direction. But at any given po- moment, it just seems to see that, that someone ha- has to overcome because if they don't, uh, you you have a conflict of sovereignties, and when sovereignties conflict, um. Until that's overcome, you don't really know who's really the true sovereign. Because that it's just like, when we talk of God's supreme sovereignty, absolute sovereign. we're talking about sovereign over every square inch, every molecule, every atom. That's what we're talking about, supreme sovereignty. That's what we're looking at. But anything not done according to his will is opposing his sovereignty, and now brings the question of how then is he sovereign? here's here's the i think one of the best ways to think about this and watch how the sovereign one how he deals with it and uses it if you if you turn to isaiah isaiah chapter 10 we'll see how he used wicked assyria this is a wicked sovereign king on the earth the assyrian king and he uses him the great sovereign there's no like oh no what are we going to do he actually as the true sovereign uses his evil and wickedness for his purposes and you'll see how this works hopefully Isaiah 10:5 and following we read woe to assyria the rod of my anger the staff in their hands is my fury now this is really amazing what he's saying here. Woe to Assyria! Assyria is God's rod of His anger. So the rod that He's using is Assyria. He's his, the staff in God's hand of His fury. He says, he's, and this is what he, this is His staff and His rod. So Assyria has this, but it's ultimately in God's hands. And he says, so against Assyria is going to go against a godless nation. I send him. And against the people of my wrath, I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread down like the mire on the streets. But he does, this is, listen to this, but he does not so intend at this point, at this moment right now. And here's the, here's the overall context. This is God sending the Assyrian king and his armies to, to bring judgment upon Jerusalem. And so he's not at this point when God declares this through Jeremiah. He's not intending in his heart to go do that. But God warned his people; they're they're apostate. They've turned to him. They're serving idols. They become utterly and completely wicked themselves. And so he says, "Okay, I, I've warned you. I sent prophets to you. You are going to be judged. You are going. It's coming. And I've repent. It's coming. And so he takes this king who wasn't thinking of it, and he turns his heart. Says. Go to Jerusalem. So he does but he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart, listen to this, his heart doesn't intend to go there and do that, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, Are not the commanders are not all my commanders kings? He's arrogant. He's totally arrogant. So Assyrians, this is a wicked king. He's just done wickedly, and God knows he's wicked. And so God says, I'm going to use his wicked, this wicked king, to serve my purposes and go bring judgment on Jerusalem. It wasn't in his heart. He didn't intend. God's like, go towards Jerusalem. All of a sudden, he wakes up and says, I think we should take Jerusalem. Let's go wipe him out. And then down in verse 11, It says, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? This is the Lord speaking. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, listen this. So now he's done all his work there, his work of judgment upon them. He says, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and his boastful look in his eyes. So God brought evil upon Jerusalem who was wicked, who's a w- wicked ruler through a, sorry, through a wicked ruler who is arrogant and demonic. So if you think of the passage in, uh, in Amos 3 that many people think of in terms of, okay, God is sovereign and how does evil work in the world if God is sovereign? And then you read Amos 3 and you think, well, the evil comes actually from God. Amos 3 says, if calamity has come to a city, has the Lord not done it? So there's your proof text, it's like the evil comes, has the Lord not done it? Well, yeah, evil in that particular context, evil is like whenever something bad happens, calamity happens. When calamity happens, has the Lord not done it? Ultimately, yes, and he's using, so he uses wicked Assyria, turns his heart to judge wicked Jerusalem, and so it's sovereignly obeying him, he doesn't even realize it, to go do his bidding. God simply turns, like the heart of the king, as Proverbs talks about, is in the hand of the Lord, like the rivers of water, to turn it wherever he wishes. But he's not turning it in such a way that he's making a guy, he's making him go do evil. If you look at that passage, there's evil in his heart. He's an evil, corrupt man. He's looking to do evil. And, oh, by the way, there's judgment I'm going to bring over here and I'm going to use the evil and the wicked to accomplish that judgment. Another example of how this works out is Joseph and his brothers. When God uses evil in order to produce good. The brothers intended, we all know, right, to kill Joseph. But God used it to promote Joseph. In Genesis 50, verse 20, we have Joseph's brothers fearfully meeting him. And when they meet him, guess who Joseph is, we all know. Joseph is pretty much, he is, he's is he got more power and authority and rule in the the powerhouse of the world, Egypt, than anybody. He actually exercises, even though Pharaoh was above him, he exercised more power and authority because Pharaoh gave it all to him. So this is the powerhouse of the land at that time, the powerhouse of the world, and his brothers knew they tried to kill him, and they're going to meet him, and they know it's him, and they're, as you could imagine, freaked out. They're a little scared. And then Joseph calms them down, and he says this in verse 20. Listen, brothers. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Why? To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Salvation came to the world at that time through this evil act that you tried to perform. And that's how God can sovereignly use it. He can sovereignly take every single evil, and he does. And he takes every evil, every wicked, and he's using it for good, for glory, for judgment, all for righteous and just purposes in the earth. Every bit of it. So this is why, this is why he he can drive completely insane Satan and all his demons. Because even when they think they, they've got them, they've got them, they're gonna do something really grand and great. Because it, it seems on the surface of it so grand and great. He's like, tricked ya, saved the world. That's what we have in Jesus, right? That was a total setup. They thought, we got the Messiah. We got him. Look at, woo, this be awesome they truly did they had no they and this is why god kept it hidden and clouded they didn't know what they were doing yet they are performing all venting all their evil and all the evil was performing the salvation of the world that's how god sovereignly governs and works through evil he takes it all and he makes sure every and here's something you can count on every single bit of evil will ultimately be worked out for Just purposes, good purposes, no matter what it is. So much so that at the very end, even the most vile, wicked, and horrific atrocities and genocides that have occurred on this earth, God will make them result in the most beautiful end you could ever imagine. He will blow your mind. So much so that when you see it, all you can do is fall down and worship. Woe is me. I'm a puny person with a puny brain, and I could not see it. Wow. That's what he's like. When we see this, it's truly going to be mind-blowing. Let me even explain kind of by analogy, if I can. Again, this is going to be break down because I'm talking finiteness in a finite world, but just how this could possibly work itself out. If it was in my power to stop someone from murdering a family and I didn't stop them, then my non-actions are accounted to me as evil. And this is sometimes the problem people have with evil and with God reigning and ruling. There he is. If God's all-powerful and if God's all-good, and if God looks at a genocide and doesn't stop it, God is wicked, right? That's what they say. No. Sorry, and here's why. Because if I had the power, the wisdom, and the ability to turn every Thing out to a glorious, perfect, and even better end, then it changes everything. Changes everything because if I could allow a person to be killed, and even and then raise them back to life again, in order to let's just say show the evil person their evil, and in order to humbly bring the person being killed to repentance, just for example. And so, and make it all right and all good and then reward and punish the appropriate peoples. In the end, if it's a better end and it's glorious and good, that's good, not evil. And let me, let me give some analogies why this is good. Pain and suffering and difficulties and trials are not evil in and of themselves. Only if they produce evil ends. Now let me give you a few examples. Our surgeries Good or evil? <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> they're, they're good because why? They produce a good end. They save lives in many cases. They save lives and improve the quality of lives. But I don't know if you've ever had surgery. A lot of surgeries are excruciating, painful. Like, give me tons of morphine. Painful. Like, really bad. But who would say, oh, that is wicked and evil to have surgery because you're inflicting pain and suffering. No, that's good, really good. Because why? Because the end is righteous and good and just. It, it vindicates, it makes that pain proper for its end. This goes on. It's, it's, this is why good parents spank and inflict pain upon their children and discipline on their children in order for them to to grow and become godly and produce loveliness and put away sin and 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 pursue godliness. Now, when you see the child, when you see someone be spanked and the child crying, if that's what the world sees, it looks at that like, oh man, that's wicked. Who could ever do that? Well, it's, no, it's producing righteousness. It's producing goodness. Therefore, it's good. It's a blessed pain. <laughs> it's a blessed infliction. Another analogy. Every good teacher and coach will inflict so much stress and pain on their students in order to get them to the next level. And if they're good, they press and they press, but I'm ready to die. Go again. I'm throwing up, throw up and get going. (laughs) Get going. Well, you're, infli- here's- you're evil, you're inflicting pain on me. No, this is for your good. And at the end of the day, when they see the good and they see the they see the advancement, they see that they got to the next level, they see the reward, they see what they received for all the hard work, they go to their teachers and their coaches and say, Thank you. I thank you for being so tough on me. Right? This happens all over the world. As long as the end is good and righteous and just, it vindicates the pain. And this is, this is the idea. You, no eye has seen or ear has heard is what God has prepared for those who love him. You know, the sufferings of this world are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's going to be revealed. This is the whole point. jeez. Oh, yeah. Music stands are flying. <laughs> this is something we have to understand. God has an ability that we don't. The reason why it was evil for me, if I see something happening and I have the power to stop it and I don't, it's my evil because I don't have the ability to allow the evil to happen and then work it for a greater good. I don't. I'm a man. I have to step in. For me, it would be wrong. I have to step in and deal with it. With God, He can. evils and atrocities can happen, and he's saying, watch something unbelievably amazing. It's going to happen. The judgment's coming. The judgment of all things. Don't ever think that people get away with things on this earth. Don't ever. When you see evil, and you see atrocities, and you see genocides, and you see wickedness, and say, one day it will be given account for. Judgment will come. God will vindicate it. God will do justly. God will do righteously. All things will be made right. And it will be so amazing and so glorious that we will all fall down and worship. It will be awesome. But what's the world going to tell you? They're going to tell you the perverse lies of the evil one. God is wicked. God is evil. Look, look, God is evil. No, God's not evil. God is awesome and good. The The devil's evil and wicked. Men are evil and wicked. And they do evil and wicked things. And all their evil and wicked stuff that they do, God is going to vindicate it and show that he is the true sovereign over all things. And all things will be made right. And the reason why he's just in it all and good in it all is because he's the only one who can do that kind of stuff. Raise people up from the dead. <laughs> and then hand out judgments accordingly. There was one last point that I was going to make. Um, and I realized, and the reason, you're probably looking at your watch saying, oh my, oh my. Um, but I'm not going to make it, actually. Uh, because. And I decided earlier um, last night that I th- this next one, and I was going to talk about God sovereignly governs free moral agents and talking about this issue of ourselves personally and how God governs and rules. And that, again, just blows out into another sermon. And I realized, you know, this isn't even fair. All I'm going to do is cause uh, more harm than good by, tr- by starting and having to jump off. So instead of getting into it, I'm just going to say that, you know, I think there's enough even in understanding how God sovereignly governs over evil and sovereign, God sovereignly governs over the world that I think we have enough to understand how he can govern a free moral agent and what I mean by that is somebody who's, he, you do, God doesn't force you to do what you don't want to do. It's none of this. I didn't want to, you know, you're free and you're free moral agent to make choices and decisions to do what you want to do. Now we have to get into this whole issue of what you want to do, because what does a sinful person want to do, right? And so then, so we, have to, then we have to talk about how God sovereignly has to deal with that, people who want to do things. And he, we know that how he governs evil, but how does he govern us? And how does he govern people who are making free choices? And how is it that we have free choices? when God is completely sovereign and how do those work with each other? And so this is the this this kind of gets into that age-old question about you know election and predestination and, and man's will is this, is man's will free or is man's will bound some argue freedom but and not, some argue bound and so, and so some say that man has completely free choices and some say no they're not they're they're free in one sense but they're not completely free and so there's all these issues that you get into with with this with this particular topic which are really good and are really necessary for us to understand how God sovereignly governs these moral, free moral agents making decisions. How he's, he's still absolutely sovereign, and we still have absolute responsibility and freedom to make choices, but our choices are limited by the, our natures. And once you get into understanding your nature, the nature of your will, and how bound you are in sin, God must come in and rescue and do things in our own natures. So anyways, I, I, I feel like I don't, I don't have time to get into all that, but... I'd love to talk about it afterwards if you'd like to. Um, I just want to close with this because I think understanding the sovereignty of God is probably one of the biggest issues we can come to grips with for practical purposes. You must understand that the God is the Lord of all things right that's essential but here's why because we are creatures who again, as I said last week, we're very fearful we're very fragile we're very you know easily disturbed, and we easily have um, faith problems. We have to know that the Lord is sovereign. We have to know that he's in charge. We have to know that he's in control. Because there's, there's just absolutely no way we can live this life the way we're called to live unless we know the Lord is sovereign and we can trust him. I have to be able to trust him implicitly. I have to. I have to be able to cast my whole heart, my whole concerns, my whole cares, my whole life, all the weird the weird troubles that come into my life, I have to be able to know my God's got it. Right? Because if he is sovereign, as I've declared him to be sovereign, you can trust him in every single circumstance. And the only time we fail, do you know when we fail? When we lack faith. In our God who is sovereign. We more often believe lies about our circumstances than we do God's word. God has already spoken. He's already declared. He's already revealed. But yet we will, we're more apt to believe our circumstances. Because here's one thing we have to know in reference to God's sovereignty you have a promise. He's declared to you that he is working every minute detail in your life out for your good, no matter what evil befalls you. And because of that, do you know all that God wants you to do? This would, just, just trust me and thank me. That's it. I've got it. I'm doing this for good. But I don't understand. Don't try to. Just trust me, all right? Trust me. I got it. This is this is what I do. This is this is how I govern. I've got it. Every minutia. I've got it. But god, no. Stop. I've got it. This is where I want you. This is what I have for you. So, here's the thing. If we're grumpy, untrusting or thinking that our circ- that we don't like our circumstances, these suck. I don't like this at all. And we get all like, yeah, 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 yeah. We are simply not liking God's rule over us. We don't want his will. We want our will. We don't want him to be sovereign. We want to be sovereign. It's always the problem. Even what I had to confess this morning. But you have to understand that God loves you and is working every detail of your life out for your good. All he asks that you trust him and believe him. What pleases, what displeases God is when we look at our circumstances, and from them, determine whether God is good or not. Determine whether he likes us or not. Determine whether he loves us or not. Well, Your circumstances never, ever determine whether he likes you or not. What he did in Christ determines whether he likes you or not, and he likes you. He loves you. And every circumstance you're in right now, wherever you're at right now, is where God wants you for right now. The circumstances in your life are from His hand. The stuff you don't like is from His hand. The evil is coming into your life, He allows and He governs, and He sovereignly rules over it. And everything He's promised you, He said, Stop complaining. Stop grumbling. This is from me. I've got it. I'm in control. I'm sovereignly working everything out. This is for your good. But it doesn't feel good. I know. I don't like it. I know. But it's for your good. You need this. And this is why you can look in any circumstance say, Father, I thank you for this. I truly thank you. Not because I'm demented or strange or weird. But because you've spoken and promised. That's why. You know, how often have we looked at our circumstances and from them judged whether or not God likes us, is blessing us, is for us? Yet what, you know, if if circumstances determine whether or not God likes you or loves you, then Jesus was the most hated man alive. but we know that's a lie. He's the most loved. He's the beloved son that suffered the worst for the salvation of the world. So in faith, this is my challenge to you. Leave here today to look at your circumstances and especially the ones you don't like and thank God for. Thank you. Boldly thank him. Say, God, I have to thank you. Because you promised. You've declared. This is from your hand. You know I I don't like this, but this is from your hand. And you've promised. Because you know what? I don't think if if we don't boldly declare in faith realities and truth that he's declared, we're walking in unbelief. We are walking in sin. Because he's already declared it. He's already... He told you what, how it's all going to work, and all that we have to do is thank him. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God for you. All things work out together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. He works them out, and he's working them out for good, for your good. So what's the response? Trust him, obey him, and thank him. Every day, I thank you, Father, for this morning. I thank—I got no sleep last night. I thank you for those twenty minutes last night, Lord. Those were great. I didn't deserve twenty, but you gave them to me, and apparently that's what I need. I, even though it's—it's it, it's, it's hard for us, isn't it? Hard circle. We don't like it. This is—and that's me. I hate it when I'm God. When he puts me in impossible situations that I have no ability to stand in, God, I can't. Immediately, I want to get angry. Ticked off. You you, you mad at me? You angry? Yeah, I'm really ticked off right now. What's this unbelief? So we have to learn and grow. If your faith is going to grow and get strong, if you want your faith to go get strong, you have to continually practice and even in repenting, Lord, I didn't give you thanks for this. I know I need to give thanks for this, so I give you thanks for this. Please forgive me. I've been grumpy. I've been um, angry. I've been upset. I've been all this, and it's wrong. Because this was from your hand, and your loving, caring, good, good, good hand has given this to me. This is why, you know, it can make you kind of annoyed at some people. Like, it's so funny. Oh, yeah, you think life is always rosy. You know, like, you could, some people look at Russell Wilson and he says, God is good always. Yeah, but you're a pro football player making millions, married to some hot babe. You know, you got it all, Russ. It's like, well, no, he doesn't. He has his own problems, but he's got the right theology, whether it's good or bad, it's true. God is good always always. No matter what, he's good. No matter what, he's sovereignly governing your affairs. So thank him and trust him. Amen. Father, we thank you and we praise you for you are our God and we are your people. You govern us. You rule us. You, you sovereignly ordain all things in our lives, your overall things, so we can trust you and hope in you and thank you for everything. We praise you for everything you bring in our lives because you are awesome. You are good. You are sovereign. Blessed be your name. Oh, Lord, I pray for every person here today that they would see you and know you, know that you are sovereign, know that you're governing all things, know that you're in charge, know that you bring every situation and circumstance into their lives. And may each person here trust you and may each person here thank you and look to you and praise you for you are an awesome God. And we pray this in Christ. Amen.